Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Lucy arrived in Hollywood in July of 1933. Her 22nd birthday was just a few weeks away. She took the train with some of the other new Goldwyn girls. Here's Lucy from an interview from sometime in the 1960s. It was published in a digital scrapbook. I don't remember leaving New York. I don't remember arriving in California. It was uh, marvelous. There were a couple of mothers along and all these girls I had never met before, and they were gay and beautiful. I was quite in awe. We were all going into the wonderland together. California did seem like a wonderland to Lucy. She couldn't believe how much cleaner the air was compared to New York. There were orange trees and exotic flowers she'd never seen before. The sunshine, the warmth, the easy living, and the casual clothes impressed me right away. And the beautiful mornings, the beautiful evenings, of course, plus the being in the business, being around show people impressed me very much. Lucy rented a one-room apartment on Formosa Street in Hollywood. It had one of those Murphy beds that pop out of the wall. I lived just like three blocks up from the uh, Goldwyn studio, and I couldn't afford a car when I first got out there. And Other girls in my group were worrying about uh, having cars to drive. She bought a secondhand bike for $10 and rode it to the studio every day. It never bothered me a bit. I was delighted to ride a bicycle. It was great exercise, but I was a little tired at night to ride it back, so I did hire a cab to take the bicycle, and I rode in the cab. Of course, the driver thought I was nuts, but that didn't matter. All that mattered now was that Lucy was finally working in show business. And this time, she wasn't going to blow her chance. She quickly figured out that the way to get noticed in a beautiful town with beautiful people was just make them laugh. I'm your host, Ben Mankiewicz. You're listening to Season 3 of The Plot Thickens, a podcast from Turner Classic Movies. This season, we're telling the story of how Lucille Ball became the funniest, most recognizable woman in America. This is Episode 3, Hollywood. Lucille Ball's first break in Hollywood was as a Goldwyn girl in the movie Roman Scandals. Keep young and beautiful. It's your duty to be beautiful. Keep young and beautiful. Goldwyn was producer Sam Goldwyn. 
He was making big-budget musicals in the 1930s, ones that had elaborate sets and dance numbers. The Goldwyn Girls were the beautiful young women who lined up behind the stars, usually wearing gowns, feathers, or swimsuits. Whatever showed off their figures. Roman Scandals was a giant production, United Artists' biggest musical of 1933. The star was a very short vaudeville performer with eyes like saucers. In fact, his nickname was Banjo Eyes. His real name was Eddie Cantor. With a million little stars, we can decorate the ceiling. In the movie, Cantor plays a grocery boy who travels through time to ancient Rome and becomes a food tester for the emperor. How would you like to be the official food taster? The what? I find myself in need of a food taster. You mean all I have to do is just eat? Exactly. You eat the same food I eat, only you eat it first. The first glimpse you get of Lucy in the movie is a doozy. She's chained to a rock and seems to have no clothes on. particular scene, we were slave girls, and we were put around a rotunda, around the slave area, supposedly, high up on the set it was, and we were chained in the nude, supposedly, with these wigs. Those wigs were long and platinum, made from hemp. All the slave girls looked like they were naked. Of course, they weren't. They were wearing flesh-colored bodysuits. Shooting was not easy. The women were chained to a rock for hours as the director shot different angles. It was hot under all the lights. At one point, Lucy fainted and fell more than 20 feet right into the arms of one of the other actors. Louis Robinson saved me. He was a big, bulky, wonderful man, and he was one of the slave drivers, and he was underneath, and he caught me, but it was no fun. Lucy arrived at the studio at 6 a.m. for costume and makeup, and she worked late, sometimes until 3 in the morning. She was making close to $125 a week, plus overtime. The good news was she and the other Goldwyn girls got to eat all the food brought in for the Roman emperor's banquet. Whole roasted pig, sides of beef, tons of fruit and pastries. To the men making these musicals, the women in them were eye candy. But every once in a while, a director would ask for a volunteer, a young woman willing to step out and do something more. She was usually asked to be the butt of a joke, but that was not how most of the Golden Girls wanted to make their mark. Lucille Ball was different. She talked about it on Merv Griffin's talk show in 1973. No, no one ever said, make her a star. Someone said, she doesn't care if her face gets all dirty and she makes faces and screams and yells a lot, and the other girls are very busy being beautiful. She isn't too beautiful and she isn't too, uh, you know, she doesn't care what she does too much. So go ahead, let her do the screaming, let her do the running, let her take the mud pack. And that's how I got started. Seriously, I'm not kidding. Because the rest of the girls were really beautiful girls. And they didn't have to do that. All they had to do was just walk around and be beautiful. Well, I kind of hid in the background. But when there was something to scream about or wear a mud pack or, or do something physical, I was available and they weren't. Lucille Ball never did see herself as a great beauty. But what she did see was her chance, her chance to set herself apart from the other women. She was hardworking, enthusiastic, and uh, determined to get ahead. That's Kathleen Brady. She wrote an in-depth biography of Lucille Ball. 
she was determined not to have the same thing happen to her in Hollywood that had happened at the drama school, where she was afraid to speak. Lucy was older now, less self-conscious. On the first day of shooting, she decided to take matters into her own hands. So when she and the other Golden Girls were given skimpy bathing suits to wear and told to line up, she had a plan. She remembered a prank she saw another woman do back in New York. She tore up small pieces of red crepe paper and stuck them to her arms and face as though she had the measles. When Eddie Cantor walked down the line to get a closer look at each of the women, he saw Lucy and cracked up. That dame's a riot, he said. Lucy was in heaven. There's another version of this story, one told not by Lucy, but by an old friend of hers. In it, instead of red dots on her body, Lucy blacked out her two front teeth to get a laugh. All these years later, it's hard to know which version is true. But what we do know, without a doubt, is that Lucy was the one daring enough to step out of the line of Goldwyn girls, the one willing to step out and get a laugh. Whenever a volunteer was needed, she volunteered, including when a girl was needed to take a mud pack in the face. She said she'd do it. And the other girls said, um, they won't see you under the mud pack. They won't know who you are. And Lucille Ball said, well, they don't know who I am now. But that was about to change. So very soon after she got to Golden Studios, Lucille was outside telling a friend of hers some story, using all the gestures and expressions of what had happened to her. As Lucy told the story, a director named Ed Sedgwick caught sight of her. Sedgwick had directed silent films at MGM. And he saw this young woman with all the gestures and the expressions and the mannerisms that stars of the silence tried so hard to do in their comedies. Sedgwick walked up to Lucy. He was a Texan, thick Southern accent, an even thicker waist. He interrupted her and said, Young lady, if you play your cards right, you could become the greatest comedian in America. Lucy thought Ed Sedgwick was hitting on her. She gave him a look of disgust and walked away. But for the first time since trying to break into showbiz, Lucy wasn't being told she'd never make it. Someone was finally telling her she could be good at something, really good at something. Now the hard part, Lucy had to believe it. Lucy made a good living in Hollywood even during the Depression. She started putting $25 out of every paycheck into the bank. She had several things to save her money for. One was to bring her family out to California. The other was to get her teeth fixed because she had terribly crooked teeth. When Lucy's brother Fred finished high school, she persuaded him to come out to Hollywood. She borrowed a car to pick him up. Fred Ball told PBS about it in 2000. She was driving a, uh, I think it was a 31 uh, Buick convertible. And uh, she picked me up at the bus station in downtown Los Angeles, and she drove me to Hollywood. And it was probably the wildest ride, ride I have ever had, had in my life. Fred said Lucy approached driving like she did everything else, with gusto and no brakes. Fred soon got a job at a nightclub called the Trocadero. 
He lived with Lucy in her apartment on Formosa. And right away, uh, we decided that, uh, you know, if I've got enough money, we go rent a house and bring uh, the family together again, which I did have enough money, and we did do that. Lucy found a three-bedroom house near the studio. It looked like a miniature mansion from New England. The house was at 1344 North Ogden Drive. Fred and Lucy rented it for $85 a month. So she got a friend of hers, the actress Ann Southern, to help her fix it up along with her brother. They scrubbed the floors and they put down linoleum and uh, painted the rooms in pastels. Fred told me that she knew just what she wanted done and she had lots of ideas for the work and I guess he had to do the heavy stuff. Lucy went to a lot of trouble to make it a home, with one goal in mind, to bring her mother and her grandfather out to California. Eventually, her cousin Cleo would join them, too. She desperately wanted to reunite them after they had been forced to go in different directions in Jamestown. It had been years since the shooting in Celeron when the family was forced to break up. Ever since, they'd struggled to find a home together. Lucy signed a seven-year contract with Columbia Pictures, so she was guaranteed a paycheck. Between her and Fred, they could support the rest of the family. When Lucy finished decorating, she and Fred called their mother, Dee Dee, and told her to make reservations on the Super Chief, the cross-country passenger train. It was time for them to come out to California. As Lucy remembers it, she hung up the phone And 10 minutes later, someone from Columbia called to say she'd been fired. She was a contract player at Columbia, but all the contract players were fired. Columbia had decided to give up its stock company. Those were the actors who worked full-time for the studio and got regular paychecks. And she told me that she wired her family, don't take the train, take the bus. Later that night, Lucy had a date. Here she is with talk show host David Frost in 1971. And Johnny Green's brother and I had a date to go to dinner, and I was crying. And he said, what's the matter? I said, I lost my job, and my family's coming out. And he said, well, uh, there's another job down the street. They're having an audition tonight for showgirls. And I said, I don't want to be a showgirl again. I just got through being a showgirl. So they said, said, well, you want to work, don't you? I said, yeah, come on, let's go. Lucy went to the showgirl audition at RKO Pictures, one of the other five big studios in Hollywood. It was for a movie called Roberta with Ginger Rogers and Fred Astaire. Think of what you're losing by constantly refusing to dance with me. Two dancers who were becoming a sensation. There's a reason I won't dance. Don't ask me. I won't dance. Lucy got the job, and Dee Dee and Grandpa Hunt were back on the super chief. A friend of Lucy's, the actor George Raft, heard her family was coming out to live with her. He gave her $65 and lent her his chauffeured limousine. She picked up her mom at the train station in George Raft's limousine. So it was all done in great style, and I know she was thrilled. When Dee Dee saw their new house on Ogden Drive, she burst into tears. Lucy told her she'd never have to work again. Later, Lucy recalled 
That night was one of the most marvelous evenings of our lives. But not everyone in the family took to California like Lucy. Well, her dear grandfather, whom she loved so much and who really was a father to her, did not really want to go to California, although he wanted to be with his family. Lucy thought the sunshine would add 10 years to her grandfather's life, but Lucy's cousin Cleo says it was really hard on him. I mean, he missed home. He missed everything about sailing around Jamestown, his heritage, his family, his roots, everything. And he just was an old man who sat in the garage with a card table and a chair out there, a pipe, and he played solitaire. Grandpa Hunt became friends with the milkman, the trash collector, and all the retirees living nearby. They'd gather in the garage, drink coffee, and talk politics. He was very politically involved. He always had been. Life had been hard for him, and he knew that it had been hard for a lot of people. Grandpa Hunt was a socialist through and through. Whenever he had extra money, he'd give it to the sex workers on the corner of Sunset Boulevard and Fairfax. Then he'd tell them to take the night off. He subscribed to the Daily Worker, a communist newspaper. There would be gatherings of new members, receptions of new members, and he would have them at the house that Lucille Ball provided for her family. He would give credit to Lucy for her help in bringing these gatherings about. Lucy wasn't much interested in politics, but eventually she registered to vote for the first time because Grandpa Hunt asked her to. He told Lucy to register to vote as a communist and to make him happy. She did that. Grandpa Hunt convinced Dee Dee and Fred to register too. Cousin Cleo was too young. Lucy voted in the primary that year, but not in the general election. She was busy and couldn't be bothered. It's a small detail, something that might have gone by as a blip in an ordinary life. But Lucy's life was becoming anything but ordinary. And there would be a point, not too far off, when Grandpa Hunt's politics would be much harder to ignore. You're listening to The Plot Thickens from Turner Classic Movies. We'll be back with more Lucy after this short break. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Whether it's routine maintenance and emergency repair or a dream project, Angie lets you compare quotes from multiple local pros, browse homeowner reviews, and even book a service instantly. Angie's been connecting people with skilled pros for nearly 30 years. So the next time you have a home project, bring it to Angie to get your job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Lucy loved being at RKO. She learned a lot working as a showgirl on the musical Roberta, the movie starring Ginger Rogers and Fred Astaire. Sitting on the sidelines watching 
You learn an awful lot. Not how to dance like they do, but how to conduct yourself and and how the people react to the director and how the director reacts to this and how what you're supposed to do with the unit manager and the assistant director and and how uh, you have to learn how to take direction and how you have to learn how to be on time and how you have to learn to always be ready in case they need you and you learn the value of all these things so that they will remember that you are uh, to be depended on they say get that girl she's always ready she'll do it In 1935, Lucy signed a seven-year contract with RKO. That meant she'd have a regular paycheck again. Lucy soaked up this new life, which was so different from her life in New York. It still required hustle, but the orange trees and the sunshine made it seem less grueling. Every day she got up and went to a movie set for her job, the job she'd always wanted. And she knew being a contract player at a studio was a lucky break. They had publicity departments who made us, whether we wanted it or not, they dressed us, they trained us, they gave us a chance to perform. We could fall on our faces if, if we weren't any good, but we had a chance. I knew I was getting a well-paid apprenticeship. After the musical with Rogers and Astaire, she got more roles in their pictures. She played a flower shop clerk in Top Hat, which became a runaway hit for RKO. And she got a slightly bigger role in Follow the Fleet. She played a wisecracking showgirl. She even got a few zingers, like this line she tossed at a sailor. Tell me, little boy, did you get a whistle or a baseball bat with that suit? As they worked together, Lucy and Ginger Rogers became friends. And Lucy grew close to Ginger's mother. Leela Rogers. When Lucy was at RKO, she always considered that her great break came when she met Leela Rogers. That's TCM host Robert Osborne in a PBS interview from 1999. Ginger could be nice because Leela wasn't so nice. Leela was the ambitious one that did all she could for her daughter. Leela Rogers was a force. She was in her mid-40s with bleached blonde hair like her daughter's. She'd been a Marine in World War I, one of only a handful of women to serve. She was a devout Christian scientist and a conservative Republican. And Leela was pushy with her daughter, with the bosses at RKO, and with Fred Astaire. And she used to get in Fred Astaire's way like crazy on the sets. She would go on the sets when they were dancing, and she'd say, I don't like that dress, I don't like that, I like that. And so Fred Astaire finally said to the bosses at RKO, you got to get Leela Rogers off this set. Leela gave all the young actors advice on their performances and careers. The studio bosses knew that. So they said, Leela, come and train our actors. We'll build a theater for you there, and you can train our actors. Lucy became one of her students. Leela advised her on everything. How to get more roles, what to wear, who to date. Leela was taking formal acting classes herself. Here's Lucy talking about her in a BBC documentary. That was a wonderful thing that Leela Rogers was doing, that Ginger's mother, uh, besides taking very good care of Ginger, uh, found time to help the younger people on the lot and invited us to a workshop that she was conducting. And we were in her workshop on the lot three or four times a week. The bosses gave Leela a barn to work out of. It became known as the Little Theater on the Lot. She would cast and produce plays. And every 
Friday night at five o'clock before a producer could check off the lot for the weekend, she would put on one hour of skits or plays with all the contract players. And it was a way for the producers to see the young people under contract to think, hmm, I could use her in the movie and so and so. I could use him in such and such. Leela Rogers at the RKO was absolutely a big influence on uh, Lucille's life. Lucy's brother, Fred Ball. Leela was like, a, you know, another mother to her. Lucille became part of the family. In 1935, Lucy was quoted in the Buffalo Evening News. She told the reporter that Leela Rogers had helped her more in three weeks than anyone else ever had in Hollywood. It was great to have an ally like Leela Rogers in her corner, but Leela couldn't perform miracles. The reality was the chances of making it in Hollywood were so slim, so small. Lucy had a long way to go. Lucy was dating quite a bit in Hollywood and she eventually fell for a guy she met at the studio. Pandro Berman was a producer at RKO. He was about 30, a few years older than Lucy when they met. And he was also married. Berman had dark hair, thick eyebrows, and full round cheeks. He was handsome, pudgy, and powerful. He was the head of the studio, and it was very clear to everyone that they had a relationship. He really was in love with her. So that gave her a certain clout. At least it protected her in many instances, including the time where, without meaning to, she hit Katharine Hepburn with a cup of coffee. Katharine Hepburn was the prestige star at RKO. Lucy was just a bit player. She told the story to talk show host David Frost in 1971. Well, it's one of the few times I ever lost my temper when I was a starlet. But I used to have a hole in my teeth. That's how the whole thing started. Remember, Lucy had crooked teeth, and she was apparently missing a tooth. So I had to save my money and buy a cap. But I I couldn't get a permanent cap. I couldn't afford that, so I got a, a temporary And on top of that, he fixed some other little places so that I had like nine or ten little tiny pieces of porcelain or whatever it was. Lucy kept those little pieces of porcelain in a box. She brought them to the studio that day because she was trying to get some portraits taken to help her career. She couldn't afford a professional photographer, so she waited until one was at RKO shooting someone else. You're a starlet. You say, could I... Could I have some pictures taken, you know? And they said, well, we'll try to work you in, you know. Then you could sneak in because the photographer was there. And in between, while she was dressing or he was dressing, you could could pose and get a couple of pictures, you see. But the teeth were very important. I had never had any pictures taken when I could really smile. So the day arrives when Lucy can squeeze into a professional shoot happening at the studio. She came in early for hair and makeup. And I was supposed to have my makeup put on by the head of the makeup department, who was a very nice man and uh, was condescending a little about it, but still he was doing it for me. I was very flattered that he was going to do my makeup. And he put me down in the chair and he said, I don't have very long. I said, yes, sir, I know. If you could just get my base on, just tell me how to fix my eyes. I'd be very happy. Thank you very much. And he said, okay, but when Miss Hepburn comes, I'll have to. I said, that's all right. You go right ahead. I put my face back and he was smearing me with this stuff. Then he got halfway through it and he said, Miss Hepburn is coming. Get out. So I 
got up and I ran. And I that was fine. I was expected and all that. And I ran like at the end. I said, good morning, Miss Hepburn. And she said, hello. And I went in, you know. Because I, I, I didn't know her. She didn't know me that well. She'd met me, but we weren't friends. Anyway, I got outside and, and the man locked the door. And it was a tiny little room adjacent to the makeup room. And he locked the door and Miss Hepburn got into the chair and started to get a very important makeup on for a very big picture. And I... At least I'd gotten that far, and I had my little powder puff and whatnot, and I was able to finish. And I said, my, my teeth, my teeth, my caps. I've, I've left my caps in there. So I thought, well, I'll just have to ask him to hand them to me. So I rapped on the door, and he said, who is it? And I told him, I said, I left my caps. He said, go away. I said, oh, I can't go away, sir. I left my caps in there. They're, they're right there by your hand. Please, sir. And I begged for this, and he would not listen to me. So now I went into the hairdresser, and I told this lady who was very nice to me in there. I said, Jeannie, he won't give me my caps. And that's the whole reason I'm doing all this today. Having these pictures made is because I have my caps. There's no reason to have any pictures made if I don't have my caps. And she said, well, just, she went over to the window, and she said, uh, I won't use the name. She used his name, and he said, will you stop bothering? Miss Hepburn's getting her makeup on. So now we're in panic. He wouldn't even do it for her. So I went to the little window, a little tiny window like this, and there was, you know how it is in some work areas, they have coffee and cups and sugar and cream and things. And I was leaning over, and I said, please, please, just give me the little box of caps, please. And he said, get away. And I picked up a cold half cup of coffee and I threw it through the window. And it hit Miss Hepburn. Oh, <laughs> oh my God. And it went all over her. And then you know, I'll forget it. She got up and she went home. She went home. She went. She went out of the studio and home. She didn't even wait. She just said, what happened? And I said, she said, Lucille Ball threw a cup of coffee at you, you know. Oh. She went home. And now the whole studio was on my neck. Well, obviously she could have gotten fired. I mean, I think in the normal chain of events, a contract player who threw coffee and spilled coffee all over a major star who was making a film, the star goes off in a huff. It was pretty big. But Lucy kept her job, likely because of her relationship with Pandro Berman. He was considered the boy wonder at RKO. He produced the Ginger Rogers Fred Astaire films, and he was the one making Katherine Hepburn a star. Berman wanted to leave his family and marry Lucy. Lucy's friends egged her on. They thought it would help her career, and it was tempting. After all, Lucy was ambitious. But in the end, she turned him down. She didn't see herself as the home-wrecking type. Not long after, she found a new boyfriend. His name was Al Hall. He was older, in his 40s, and divorced. He was a director at Columbia Pictures. He wasn't a hotshot like Berman, but he was competent. If he was known for anything, it was directing comedies. Lucy wasn't in love with Al Hall, but that didn't stop the gossip columnists from speculating. When was he going to pop the big question? Lucy was in her mid-20s at the time, and showing no signs she wanted to settle down and get married, which back then, in the 1930s, was kind of a big deal. Instead, Lucy focused on working, 
all the time. She just needed to get bigger roles. In 1937, Lucy was cast in Stage Door. Her old boyfriend, Pandro Berman, was the producer. It was about a group of young women living in a boarding house called the Footlights Club. They were all trying to break into theater. It had an extraordinary cast of young actresses, including Ginger Rogers, who was then the biggest star at RKO. So long, String Bean. I shall see you at the theater. Hey, you know. And Catherine Hepburn, presumably now over the coffee business. The calla lilies are in bloom again. Such a strange flower. Eve Arden was in it, too. And so was a 14-year-old tap-dancing sensation named Ann Miller. And, of course, Lucille Ball. She played Judy Canfield, a young, world-weary actress from Seattle, trying to make it on Broadway. You know, there's nothing like a cheerful letter from home. Pa got laid off. My sister's husband has left her. Mm, one of my brothers slugged a railroad detective. I guess that's all. Lots of love. Can you spare 50 bucks? Lucy spent her New York days as a struggling actress living in boarding houses, so the subject matter was familiar. Lucy even wore her own clothes in the movie. At this point, she had a reputation for dressing well. Her character wore lots of jackets cinched at the waist, wide leg pants, and pencil skirts. Her hair was light auburn when they filmed the movie. She wore it longer and curled at the ends, similar to Katherine Hepburn. The director of Stage Door was Gregory LaCava, he was 45 years old and at the height of his career directing screwball comedies. LaCava liked to experiment. He had the idea of doing what is called cuff shooting, which is making it up as you go along. LaCava would have secretaries walk among the actresses during breaks and shooting. They would record what the women said, how they talked, and what they cared about. The secretaries would then report this back to LaCava. And then he would, in the evening, he would write it up and make a script. This is the dialogue that they would shoot by day. LaCava based each character in Stage Door on the actress playing her. The cast was given new scripts every day, and LaCava encouraged them to improvise. This approach drove some of the actresses crazy. Catherine Hepburn complained more than once, but LaCava's idea worked. The result was overlapping dialogue that felt fresh and natural. Judy from Seattle was every bit Lucy, or at least the Lucy that Gregory LaCava pieced together from all the bits of conversation overheard by his secretaries. She was wise and wary. She always managed to have enough to eat, although she did not um, ever get cast in anything. But there were always young men coming in from her native Seattle to take her out to dinner, much as had been the case with Lucille Ball in New York. So what's amazing is LaCava picked her as the girl who would give up show business and go home. At the end of the movie, Lucy's character goes home to get married and have kids. Oh, goodbye, everybody. I gotta catch a six o'clock train. Thanks for everything and, you know, the shower and all. The young women throw her a goodbye party. The characters played by Ginger Rogers and Katherine Hepburn wonder why they're staying in New York, trying to make it when they could leave like Judy. Well, at least she'll have a couple of kids to keep her company in her old age. And what do we have? Some broken down memories and an old scrapbook, which nobody will look at. 
But LaCava got Lucy all wrong. She inspired him to believe that Lucille Ball would give up show business and go back where she came from and raise a family, and that's not exactly how things worked out. No, it definitely wasn't how things worked out. Stage Door was released six months later and went on to earn four Academy Award nominations. Lucy started getting a reputation as RKO's Queen of the Bees, as in bee movies. These were movies with smaller budgets, fewer stars, and predictable plots. Studios made them to fill double feature slots in theaters around the country. Lucy made so many of these B-movies, the RKO wardrobe department was often working on three different dresses for her for three different movies at the same time. She even got an audition to play the lead in Gone with the Wind, one of the most popular films of all time. Lucy didn't get the part, but the studio believed in her so much, they gave her a dialect coach to master Scarlett O'Hara's southern accent. So Lucy renegotiated her contract with RKO. She asked for more money, and she got it. Now she had enough cash to get her own apartment. The house on Ogden Drive was pretty crowded, and Lucy wanted her own place. Things were changing for her. She was clearly not going back to her hometown, like her character does in Stage Door. Lucille Ball was sticking around, hoping to be one of the lucky ones. And boy, was she about to get lucky. Plot Thickens will return in just a moment. In early 1940, Lucy got a role in the movie Dance Girl Dance. You know, I got ambition too. Only I don't have to crack my joints to get where I'm going. I got brains. Dance Girl Dance is the story of two young women who are trying to make their way in the dance world. That's Judith Maine. She's retired now, but she used to teach feminist film studies. In the movie, Lucy plays Bubbles, an ambitious showgirl type who becomes a famous burlesque queen named Tiger Lily White. We are proud and fortunate to present to you Manhattan's Tiger Lily White. Lucille Ball is just so boisterous but in a positive way she's brassy she's loud and she knows how to bump and grind lucy's co-star is maureen o'hara who was considered the new face of rko o'hara was striking an irish-born redhead with green eyes she plays judy a dancer who dreams of becoming a famous ballerina and so the film traces the relationship between these two friends as bubbles played by lucille ball becomes very famous and well-known as a vaudevillian performer, whereas Judy really wants to become a serious dancer. I could hear the music and my feet kept making up the steps. And to me, they they are absolute co-stars of this film, Lucille Ball and Maureen O'Hara. I think this was an important step in Lucille Ball's career to take on a role like this, which really highlighted what she was good at. Once Bubbles makes it big as Tiger Lily, she does a striptease number. It's mild by today's standards, but back then it was pretty racy. 
Lucy actually went to burlesque houses and studied how to do a striptease. She also does a sexy hula in front of a leering businessman. I ain't got an ounce of class, sugar, honest. Can you dance? Well, it's been called that. You see this guy in close-up, in the alternation between him and the young women dancing, chomping on his cigar and getting very, you know, turned on as Lucille Ball thrusts her hips around and moves and is completely there to create sex appeal. I grew up with I Love Lucy, and so seeing her as a Hollywood actress is, you know, she was so sexy. I mean, she really had a sexual presence in those films. Lucy, of course, playing the Tootsie, and she's terrific in it. It's one of her, it's one of her best film performances because it really fit her. She was perfectly cast. That's Robert Osborne again, who was close friends with Lucy. It also was cast very much to type of at that type. Marino O'Hara was very much a lady, and it still is, and is just a classy lady. Lucy was never classy. She had great class to her and was a thoroughbred, but she was not the image of being a classy lady. And Lucy, I know, <laughs> felt very much in awe of Rain O'Hare because she said, you know, everybody would pal around with me and joke and light my cigarette and everything. And then she said Marino O'Hara would come in and then they would all treat her like a great lady. They never treated me that way. And it bothered her. The tension between Bubbles and Judy builds and builds in Dance Girl Dance until it finally explodes. They get in a fight on stage at one of Bubbles' shows, like a full-on, physical, pulling hair, wrestling fight. There's even a slap. Come here. Crab in my act, you jealous little pig. People say, you know, the cat fight is such a, such a horrible resolution to the conflict between them. I think it's great. I love cat fights. You know, there's so much that comes out, you know, and finally they just get down and dirty and physical about, you know, how frustrated they are with each other. This fight wasn't just important in the movie. It was a prelude to one of the most important moments in Lucille Ball's life. On a day they were shooting the fight scene, Lucy and Maureen O'Hara broke for lunch and went down to the RKO commissary to grab a bite to eat. Lucy was wearing the dress she'd wear in the striptease number, and she was made up to look like she'd just been in a cat fight. Well, Lucy was wearing a gold lame dress with a slit that was now torn up, and she had a black eye, courtesy of the makeup department, and her hair was askew. It wasn't just askew. Her blonde hair was a mess and there was a bandage on her forehead. As they moved through the lunch line, Lucy saw the director of her next movie sitting at one of the tables. The movie was called Too Many Girls. The director was George Abbott. Lucy went over to say hello. Abbott was not alone. He was sitting with a handsome young man. He had a boyish face, jet black hair, dark eyes, and a thick accent. Maureen O'Hara would later say it was like fireworks exploded in the RKO commissary that day, even though the meeting lasted only a minute. Not since Johnny DeVita had Lucy felt that kind of immediate attraction. The young man? A Cuban actor named Desiderio Alberto Arnez Ideacha III. His friends, and soon the world, would know him as Desi. 
And together, Lucy and Desi would make television history. Next time on The Plot Thickens, we go to Cuba on the eve of a revolution. Get your mother out of the house right away. They're coming after you. Who's coming after us? I asked. Machado has fled the country and anyone who belonged to the Machado regime is in danger. And while Desi's rise had everything to do with talent and ingenuity, there was also this. Because he could rumba standing up and he could rumba lying down. Angela Carone is our director of podcasts. Story editor and creative consultant is Joanne Ferrion. Audio editing and sound design by Mike Volgaris and his exceptional ears. Script writing by Angela Carone, Yako Friedman, Dale Maharaj, Maya Croth, and Joanne Ferrion. Yako Friedman is our senior producer. Associate production from Josh Lash. Additional editing and sound design by Paul Robert Mounsey and Heather Frankel. Additional script editing by Brian Erstadt and Susan White. James Sheridan is our researcher, fact-checker, and resident Lucy expert. Mixing by Glenn Matulo and Tim Pelletier. Production support from Jordan Bogey, Bailey Tyler, Allison Fior, Julie Bitton, Mario Riles, Susanna Zapeta, Liz Winter, and Reed Hall. Web support by Betsy Gooch. Thanks to David Byrne, Wendy Gardner, Taryn Jacobs, Diana Bosch, and the entire TCM marketing team. Thank you to Dotson Raider, whose interview with Lucy is heard throughout this podcast. Other Lucille Ball clips come courtesy of the Paley Center for Media. Thomas Avery of Tune Welders composed our theme music. TCM's general manager is Pola Shagnon. Our executive producer is Charlie Tavish. Check out our website at tcm.com backslash the plot thickens. It has info about each episode and photos from throughout Lucille Ball's life. Again, that's tcm.com backslash the plot thickens. I'm your host, Ben Mankiewicz. Thanks for listening. See you next time.